0: Uh, when I was growing up, one of my uh, favorite things to do was to read the comic strip Peanuts by Charles Schultz. And I think I have pretty much every strip he ever wrote. I have a collection of books with all of them in it. But um, one of my favorites is this one I want to uh, share with you. Charlie Brown is, walks up to uh, Snoopy's doghouse and sees him on top of it uh, typing, of course. And uh, Charlie Brown says, I hear you're writing a book on theology the, that is the study of God. And Charlie Brown says, I hope you have a good title. To which Snoopy replies, I have the perfect title. Did it ever occur to you that you might be wrong? And it occurs to me that Jesus could have written this book, because one of the things Jesus did was to challenge a lot of wrong thinking about God, about ourselves, about what it means to be rightly related to God. In fact, one of the stories Jesus told, it's commonly called the parable of the prodigal son it has as one of its main lessons that all of us are wrong. All of us are wrong in our thinking about God left to ourselves. Um, Because left to ourselves, there's really nobody that's rightly related to God. All of us are lost and all of us need Jesus to rescue us and bring us home to God that's why we're here today that's why Christmas happened that's what we're celebrating Jesus said he came into this world to seek and to save the lost and he meant by that all of us that every single one of us apart from him are lost we are not rightly related to God we are lost and in need his rescue that's all of us although not everybody necessarily knows that or believes it. And one of the reasons it's, it can be tricky for us to uh, come to terms with that, to believe it, is because lostness can look very different from what we expect. And that comes through in the story too. I mean, there, there's a form of lostness that I think we do expect. We expect lostness to look very rebellious, very immoral, you know, reject God and just do your own thing. And, and that's like the younger brother, the younger son in the story who, uh, you know, takes his inheritance and gets as far away from his father as he can and blows it all in immoral living. That's what we expect lostness to look like. And then Jesus drops the other shoe and says, well, there's another kind of lostness. There's a lostness that looks very moral, very religious, very proper, like the older brother in the story. But one way or another, every one of us is lost, and the reason is is because we all on our own try to be God of our lives rather than trust God with our lives. We're We're all wrong, we're all lost, we need to admit it. Uh, we all need Jesus to rescue us from our losses. That's one of his big points in this story. That's one of the things it tells us. But but it tells us more than that. And it the reason that we're wrong in our thinking about lostness ultimately comes down to this, is that we're wrong in our thinking about God. And that's... The reason we get confused about what it means to be lost, what it means to be found, what it means to be rightly related to God is because we're confused in our thinking about God. Um, the, the people that Jesus first told this story to, they pretty much, all of them thought the same thing, which was that God wants us by keeping his rules to earn, to gain, his approval. That's how we get right with God. God's given us rules, and we need to follow those rules in order to gain his approval. Now, some of the people who thought this, we could call them the rule keepers, because that's what they did. They, They tried really hard to keep the rules, and so they thought that if they did a good enough job keeping the rules that they would, because they did that, that God did approve of them, that God was pleased with them. And they thought that because they were such good rule keepers. And then you had other people that Jesus was talking to, and we call them the rule breakers. And they thought the same thing. Well, God wants us to earn his approval by by keeping his rules, and they didn't keep his rules. And so they figured, well, God did not approve of them. God hated them. And then Jesus comes along and essentially tells us bo- both of those ideas are just, they're not true. If you're here today, and many people think this is the Christian message, you know, that the Christianity is all about, here are the rules, do your best to keep them, and if you keep them well enough, you'll make it to heaven. And if you're here this morning and you think that God either approves of you, or he doesn't approve of you based on how well or how poorly you're keeping his rules, Jesus wants you to hear something, and that is, it's not true. That's not it. That's not his message. His message is so much better than that. And that's why we're going to go back to the story and we're going to look at it again. This is the fourth in the series. And by the way, if you haven't caught the other three, that's okay. Um, If you want to catch them, you can go to our website, phillida.org, and listen to them. But we're going to go back to the story. And this time, rather than look at the sons, this time we're going to focus on the father. And we're going to do that because in describing this father to us, Jesus is really describing God. And so we're going to pick up the story. We're going to uh, just kind of skip over the first part where, you know, the younger son went off. He blew his inheritance, lived just terrible life, and finally realized it was a dead end. He's being an idiot. He's being stupid. He was wrong about his dad. And so he makes a decision to go back to his father. So verse 20 of Luke 15, So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. That's remarkable. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and now he's alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. That's also remarkable. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a goat. To celebrate with my friends, but when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. All of us carry around in our minds a picture of God a portrait of what we think God is like. I think that's true even if people who don't believe in God, they carry around a picture of the one they don't believe in. We all have a picture of God. Now, Jesus gives us here a portrait of what God is really like. And the question for you and for me is, does this picture of God bear any resemblance to the picture you carry around in your head. Now, obviously, one story can't tell us everything we need to know about God. That's why we have a whole Bible. But still, if your picture, if the one you have in your mind bears no resemblance to the one Jesus is giving us, Jesus wants to change your picture. He wants to modify or even completely replace the picture of God we have if it doesn't match up with this one. So I want to see what we can learn about who God really is from this Father's celebration. What can we learn about God from this Father's celebration? And the first thing we can learn is that God's heart is a heart that overflows with joy. God's heart overflows with joy. Notice what the father says as you get to the end of the story, and the last thing the father says to this older son of his, who absolutely refuses to go in, he doesn't want anything to do with his brother. He certainly wants nothing to do with a celebration that involves his stupid brother. And look what the father says. The father says, son, we had to celebrate and be glad. You see that? We had to. He doesn't say, well, I wanted to. Oh, I thought it was a good idea. No, we had to. Now, if you have an English standard version of the Bible you're reading, that's the one that's in the, the racks there. You'll see they translate it this way. It says, it was fitting. I don't know why they translated it that way, honestly. It's a good translation 99% of the time. This, not so great. Because it was fitting sounds like, you know, it's optional, but, you know, it was fitting. No. No, the original is much stronger than that. It's not it was fitting, it was necessary. We had to. There was no option. Really? Why is that? Well, I think Jesus gives us the answer in the other two stories he told right before he told this one. Luke 15.4, he's talking to the religious leaders who are all mad at him. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Now, watch. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Now this, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent or who think they don't. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, here we go, She calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Look what he's doing. Jesus is saying what it's like in heaven when one lost person gets found And by the way he explains it is by appealing to what people would normally experience. Let me ask you, what what do we do when something wonderful happens that makes us really, really happy? What do we do? We celebrate. The joy that we feel overflows into celebration. It has to. Joy has to be expressed. We express it by sharing it with others. We throw a party, we have a special meal. We go out to dinner. We do something. We spend some money and we celebrate. Why? Because we have to. Now, it's not have to in the sense somebody makes you. It's not an outside of us have to. It's an inside of us have to. Within us, there is this this impulse that just wants to overflow into celebration. Let me use your imagination for a minute, okay? Let me give you a few scenarios. I want you to imagine that you're a cancer patient. Some of you won't have to imagine. You've been there or you are there, but imagine you've endured months of chemotherapy and you've lost your hair, you've lost your appetite, you've lost your energy, but then you go to the doctor to get the latest test results, and he looks at you and he says, I have great news. I have good news of great joy. There is no more cancer. What do you do? Or, let's say you're a high school senior. And you just get a letter in the mail from the college you really, really want to go to. And it tells you that not only have you been accepted, but you've been granted a full-ride scholarship. Four years, all expenses paid. What do you do? What do your parents do? (laughs) Or... Let's say you're a married couple, and for years you have been wanting a baby, but you've been disappointed again and again and again, and then it finally happens. The test comes back positive, and you are pregnant. What do you want to do? No, no, no. Not what do you want to do. What do you have to do? Because you will explode if you don't. You Half to celebrate it. That's how joy works. It has to be shared. I defy you. The next time something really awesome happens to you, I defy you not to tell a single person about it. <laughs> you can't do it. You can't do it. You have to celebrate. Why? Why does your heart have to overflow into celebration? You know why? Because that's what God's heart does and he made you in his image. God's heart is full of joy and it overflows into celebration and he wants to share it. Now those you know Bible scholars that Jesus was disputing with they should have known this because this is all through the Bible. This is not you know Uh, something you just can't see. Look at Deuteronomy 14.23. Okay, this is back in the law. You hear the law and you think, ooh, boy, rules. Okay, look at these rules. Deuteronomy 14.23. Eat the tithe, that's a tenth, eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. He's talking about the temple that's going to be built in Jerusalem. So that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant, and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe. See, what this is saying is, if if I bless you so much that your tithe is so big you can't even carry it all to Jerusalem because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, well then exchange your tithe for silver, take the silver with you, go to the place the Lord your God will choose, Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Okay, Deuteronomy 16. Celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days. This is a seven-day feast after you've gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press at harvest time, be joyful at your feast. You, your sons, your daughters, your men servants, maid servants, the Levites, the aliens, the the widow get everybody who live in your towns for seven days. Celebrate the feast to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. The Old Testament is full of commands like this. Eat, drink, rejoice celebrate in the presence of the Lord one more Nehemiah 8 the Nehemiah the governor Ezra the priest and scribe the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all this day is sacred that means holy this day is holy to the Lord your God do not mourn or weep for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law because they had broken the law Nehemiah said, go, enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't grieve. This is a holy day. Does that fit your idea of a holy day? Enjoying good food and drink and celebrating Where did we get the idea that holiness is always grim and joyless? Now, are there times when being serious and sorrowful is fitting? Absolutely. Like when the younger son realized he'd been a total jerk to his dad, and so he went home and he apologized. Of course. There are times when sorrow and brokenness and weeping and seriousness are appropriate but here's the thing repentance okay repentance turn it's it's what the younger son did dead end this isn't working i'm wrong turn around go to dad that's repentance repentance is not the highest form of holiness To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. And if you're a parent, you already know this. Okay, parents, which would you prefer? Would you prefer that your children obey you and be happy? Or that they disobey you, but then feel really, really bad afterwards? Which would you rather have them do? Why would we think it's any different with God? Joy and celebration are not minor topics in the Bible. They are a reflection of the very heart of God. Because His heart overflows into celebration and He wants His people to share it. For instance, here's a specific of that, and this is the second thing we can learn about God here. God celebrates when lost people come home God celebrates when lost people come home Jesus says twice here that there's rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents that is when a lost person someone who's dead to God becomes alive to God someone who's lost becomes found okay he says there's there's rejoicing in heaven what does that mean what does that mean who's rejoicing well the angels are just the angels the angels are rejoicing and god's standing there with a stern look on his face okay notice what jesus how he described the father when the younger son comes home what does he do he runs to him he embraces him he celebrates that's a picture of god it's not just the angels who rejoice the angels are merely reflecting god's joy god himself celebrates when lost people get found he does does that fit your picture of God that when you admit your lostness when you repent and turn to him and ask Jesus to bring you to God that when you turn to him That God Himself celebrates. That God throws a party and the name on the cake is your name. That God Himself will rejoice if you will come to Him. Now, the Pharisees should have known this about God too. Okay, look at Isaiah 55 7. Let the wicked. Forsake his way, let the evil man forsake his thoughts, okay? Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely, abundantly pardon. Okay, what is this? This is a call to repentance. Come to me and receive my abundant forgiveness and love. Okay, now I want you to back up to verse 1. And see how this invitation to repent begins. Look how it's described. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. God uses the language of feasting to describe what awaits us if we turn and come home to Him. Why does God do this? Why does God forgive those who turn to Him? Is it because it's His duty It's in the job description. So he has to do that. It's in the contract. He has no choice. You know, what he really wants to do is he wants to condemn us. That's what he wants to do. But you know, Jesus did this thing on the cross and now it's in the contract. If sinners turn and repent and put their faith in Christ, God has no choice but to forgive. Is that how it is? Look at Zephaniah 3.15. Spoken to people who've been lost from God in their sin, but repent and turn back to Him. God is so much greater than we think He is. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with His love. He will... Rejoice over you with singing. Rejoice over you with singing? What is that? Is that God reluctantly doing His duty? God does not celebrate. He does not rejoice with singing out of duty, but out of delight. This is a picture of delight. Does it fit your picture of God? Okay, if not, here, take your picture of God. Take the one Jesus is giving us. One more thing. Don't worry. I already used those notes, okay? <laughs> I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, uh-oh, He's gone completely off the rails. No telling how long this is going to last. No. (laughs) One more thing. One more thing we can learn here about God. Okay. God wants you to join the celebration. God wants you to celebrate with Him for your good. For your good. Okay, the story, I don't know if you noticed this, this is a masterful way Jesus ends this story. It ends with a cliffhanger. He doesn't tell us what the older son does. Do you notice that? Does he go into the feast? Or does he stay outside? Alienated from his father, angry at his father, separated from his father. What does he do? Jesus doesn't tell us. Why not? Because we all have to decide. We have to decide. We have to choose. Are we going to join God in His celebration? Or not? We have to choose. Now, if we're like the younger son, what we have to choose is, you know, are we going to continue to try to be God of our life by breaking all of God's rules, doing it our own way, seeking our fulfillment apart from Him? Are we going to keep doing that and wind up wallowing in life's pigsties. Or are we going to admit we're wrong? We don't know what we're doing. We need to go to God. Or if we're the older son, and we're trying to be God of our lives by keeping all the rules, and basically, you know, I'm keeping these rules, so God has to bless me. Are we going to stay outside, wallowing in our self-righteousness, our self-pity, just feeling sorry for ourselves because it's just all so unfair? Or are we going to admit we're being completely arrogant and we're going to admit how wonderful God is to even want us to come into His feast? He wants us there. Are we going to admit that? Are we going to go in and join the celebration? We have to choose. We have to decide. Now, let me ask you this. If the older son will humble himself and go in and join the celebration, who will benefit the most? He will. Who benefited the most when the younger son said, you know, this pig slop ain't making it. I'm going home to dad. Who benefited the most? He did. Who will benefit the most (laughs) If you will humble yourself and go to Him and join the celebration, you will. Do you know God calls us to celebrate Him because it's in our best interest? God is the only person in the universe for whom self-centeredness is a virtue. Okay, If I said, you know, the way to happiness is you need to worship me, you'd go, huh, nah, and you'd be absolutely right. When God says it, He says, come. Drink, eat, be satisfied. I'm the only one who can satisfy you. Come, adore, and you will have joy. It's love when God does it. He invites us to join the celebration. And the greatest part of the celebration, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, is still future, you know, It's described in the Bible as this great feast, this great wedding banquet where all those who belong to Christ are going to gather and we are going to enjoy and celebrate with God. John 14, 1, do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus said, trusting God, trust also in me and my Father's house are many rooms. It's huge. It's great. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. He's talking about the cross. That's the going He's talking about. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with Me that you also may be where I am. Good news of great joy. That's what the angel called it. I have a question for you. Is that how you hear it? Does it sound like good news to you? Does it bring joy to your heart? Are you just delighting in God's grace, His embrace, His rejoicing over you with singing? Have you responded to that invitation? the choice is yours. Stay in the pigsty. Stay out in the cold. Or come in and join the celebration. Jesus said He came into this world to seek and to save the lost. And that's all of us. How do we get found? Well, He saves us by bringing us to the Father when we finally admit our lostness and put our trust in Him and what He accomplished on the cross. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ died for sins once for all. This is why He came. To die for sins once for all. The righteous, Jesus, for the unrighteous. That's us. Why? To bring you to God. How do you get to God? How do you get to God? There's only one way. Jesus brings you. Jesus brings you based on what he accomplished on the cross and rising from the dead. Is that good news to you? It's our choice. Pigsty, outside, celebration, or come in. Ask Jesus to bring us home. You just have to admit you're wrong. You have to admit you've been wrong about your lostness, wrong about the Father, and ask Jesus to take you home. He wants to do that for you. That's how great He is. I'm going to invite you to just bow your head for a minute. And I'm not going to try with some high-pressured sales technique to make you do something you don't want to do. But I just want to say, if today you have never responded to that invitation, you have never admitted you're wrong, you've never said to Jesus, bring me to God. I'm not even sure what all that means, but I know I need that. I know I'm lost. And I'm asking you, Lord Jesus, because of your death and your resurrection, bring me to the Father. If you've never responded to Him that way, You can do that today. In a minute, I'm just going to give us a quiet moment to pray. And I'm going to ask all of us just to say to God whatever is on your heart. And if today you realize that you're on the outside looking in and you want to be on the inside, you want to be right with the Father, you want to come home to Him, Jesus will bring you if you ask Him. Just admit you're wrong and ask Him to do it. And the words you use aren't really the issue because he knows, he knows what you mean. And if you have done that, will you just thank God for what He's done, help you to focus on Him and His celebration, on who He really is, and then pray for the people you know who haven't yet responded to that invitation. All right, so let's right now pray. It's just talking to God. You don't have to do it out loud. You can if you want to, but you don't have to. And just say to the Lord whatever is on your heart right now. Gracious Father, thank you so much for our Savior whom you sent to seek and save lost people like us. And thank you for this portrait of you that He's given us. Lord, You're so much greater than I'm prone to think. My thinking about You gets so small. Help me, help all of us really grasp how great You are. And Lord, help us all rely on Jesus to bring us to You that we might celebrate and magnify His worth as our Savior. For I pray in his name. Amen.